You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of North Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, uh, welcome to the Writers at Stanton program. Uh, before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands in which we meet and pay our respects to the spirits and ancestors, both past and present. My name is Scandy, I'm from the customer services team here at Stanton, and today I have the absolute pleasure of introducing Emma Partridge to talk about her new book, The Widow of Walker. Uh, journalist and author Emma Partridge has been covering crime for various media outlets for many years and is now senior crime editor at Nine News. This is her first book. Emma Partridge travelled to the small town of Walker, located in the northern tablelands of New South Wales, and spent months researching the 2017 case. For this book, she interviewed the victim's friends, his family, his wife, and the murderer herself. Please give a warm welcome to Emma Partridge. Hello, thank you for having me. This is my first talk, so bear with me if you can. Um, uh, I've been a journalist for over a decade and um, this case is certainly the most uh, intriguing case I've ever come across um, as a reporter. Um, I first learnt about this case. My sister Tess lives in Newcastle and uh, she was hosting a lunch for some of um, my brother-in-law's family and they're from this town um, of Walker. And uh, she called me and said, Emma, you've got to look into this case. Um, It's a small town near Tamworth. And um, apparently um, this farmer, Matthew Dunbar, had been found dead in suspicious circumstances. And, um, but the whole town believed that this woman, Natasha Darcy, um, was responsible for his death. Um, so Tess called me and told me this story about how he'd been found with a plastic bag over his head and apparently gassed um, with helium. Um, but nobody in the town believed um, that it was a suicide. His partner had told everybody that it was a suicide, uh, but the investigation was continuing. Anyway, by the time that Tess called me, it was about three months uh, after Matthew's death and the police were still investigating. Um, I didn't believe um, what my sister was telling me. She told me that the first paramedic on the scene to this farmer's death um, was a paramedic by the name of Colin Crossman uh, and he lived in the town of Walker. And Colin Crossman happened to be the ex-husband of Natasha, uh, the woman that everybody had suspected had killed this farmer. And Colin Crossman, the paramedic, ended up being the first paramedic on the scene um, after this woman uh, had killed the farmer. So I'm just going to read you um, one of the chapters in the book um, about when I approached her myself. Uh, So uh, as a crime reporter, I speak to uh, detectives quite often and um, somebody I know at the Homicide Squad had told me uh, that I should definitely travel up to Walker and confront her myself uh, as she hadn't been arrested yet. So I think it wasn't going to hurt the police investigation for me to confront her. Um, So this is the chapter called um, Farmgate Encounter. And I hope it's not too long. (laughs) Deary me. Did I explain that enough? (laughs) Okay. The pencil pines that line the winding dirt driveway mean we can't see the farmhouse, leaving us blind to what awaits us at the end. After spending the best part of the afternoon at Ross King's place, one of Matthew's neighbours, 
It's now dusk. We finish our cigarettes and hop into Nathan's Mitsubishi Triton. It feels strange moving past the timber front gates of Pandora, having spent hours parked across the road with a long lens camera just a few weeks back. She could pull a shotgun on she could pull a shotgun on us, Nathan chuckles as we drive over the cattle grid. Beneath his casual tone, there sounds like a kernel of worry. I stare straight ahead, both my hands on my face. We've got about 300 metres to go. What if she does shoot us, I ask, swinging around to face him, trying to get a read on his face. Well, it would make for a great yarn, Nathan said. We'd make front page, we'd make front page news for sure, he says with a mischievous grin. Black humour is a coping mechanism for all of us. Jesus Christ, I guess we would, I say with a light-hearted laugh, trying to mask the anxiety that's filling my chest. It's a bit of a worry that Nathan's worry. He's a seasoned professional who's seen and done everything throughout his career. He's captured the Southern World Trade Centre tower collapse on 9-11. There's also a picture of him covered in thick soot standing as close as you could get after hitching a ride with the first responding firefighters. So seeing him slightly apprehensive, wondering if Natasha may have some extreme reaction to our arrival, doesn't fill me with confidence. Grey storm clouds thicken, rolling in our direction. It's nearly dark. We need to do this now. We edge closer. Halfway down the driveway, it dawns on me that I've never confronted a murderer before. I can't be certain she's a killer, but from what I've been told so far, I'm pretty certain that she is. I've written about murderers, watching them in the dock during their trials for weeks on ends, and I'm no stranger to learning about the horrors that they've inflicted on others, and I've spent considerable time with victims and their families, but I've never spoken to one face to face. We pull up just to the left of the farmhouse and Nathan turns the car around. Let's keep the car running and park it facing the road so we can make a quick getaway, he says as we get out. A, a loud noise causes me to jump. A loud revving dirt bike screams towards us and a boy wearing a full face helmet, about six or seven years old, stops and glares. Hi, cool bike, I say, rolling my eyes at myself. What a lame thing to say at this moment. The boy stares again before doing a burnout, which I'm sure is done with the intention of spraying us with dirt. He takes off towards some sheds 50 metres away, and as the dust settles, Natasha Beth Darcy walks towards us. Sorry about that, she says as she gets closer, motioning to her son on her bike. Wearing, a light, wearing light denim jeans and a tight-fitting pink polo top, she flashes us an ear-to-ear -ear smile. She places her hands confidently on her hips. My heart, just as it is now, is beating out of my chest. I begin a bumbling apology about turning up an unannounced, but I'm interrupted. Natasha's phone is ringing. Sorry, she says to us before turning her back to answer it. We are so close that we can hear a male voice on the other end. I can just make out what he is saying. Something about the police trying to get in touch with her and leaving a message on her phone. Natasha nods and smiles. She's very happy. Excellent. It's good. Means the investigation is over, she says, twirling her ponytail in her fingers. The conversation lasts about a minute. It's truly unbelievable that we're here to witness this moment. Nathan and I exchange wide-eyed glances acknowledging the jackpot timing of our arrival. After she hangs up, I introduce myself and Nathan as a journalist and photographer from the Daily Telegraph. I stumble for a bit using far too many ums and ahs, but eventually tell her I'm sorry to hear about her partner's passing. I explain that I'm in town to write a story because the police are still treating his death as suspicious three months on. 
Natasha jumps in before I can finish my bumbling spiel. They've just closed it all now, she says, elated. So they're giving me my computer stuff back, all of Matt's phones and everything. That's what I just found out then. My mind is spinning. I know what this means, but I don't have the time to process it right now. Where it is safe and practical, instead of handcuffs, sirens and flashing lights, police can opt for a calmer approach to an arrest. Detectives tell the suspect the investigation is over and they ask them to come and get their things or tell them to come in and make another statement or do another interview. It's not a lie, they're just omitting the part about the arresting and charging the person upon their arrival at the cop shop. In my bones, I know this is what has just happened, right in front of us. Natasha has been told the investigation is over and the smile on her face says everything. She thinks she's in the clear. The trap is set, she's been lulled into a false sense of security. That must be a relief, I ask, surprising myself that any words made it out of my mouth. Well, I knew it was going to close eventually. I mean, I was there. I know he killed himself. Bingo. She'd just given me everything I was after. Her version. Relief floods through me, knowing I should now be able to write what everybody in the town suspects. Armed with a new confidence, I push a little harder, asking her... I ask her what happened on the night Matthew died. Politely, she explains that she can't talk without her lawyer present. I try to keep the conversation going and perhaps buoyed by her newfound confidence, she starts yakking away. I know there are a lot of rumours and everything in town and I don't want to add any fuel to anyone's fire, but we know what happened. The kids are only just getting over it now and sleeping through the night and things like that. She pauses. I'm desperate to fill the gap. I find silence awkward and uncomfortable and I count backwards in my head from five to stop myself from interrupting. Don't speak, Emma. Be quiet and let her hang herself, I beg myself again. It works. She keeps going, digging herself a deep hole. I'm dealing with PTSD because I was the one that found him and I'm working with counsellors and I just don't want to... Natasha says, trailing off. I push again, asking her to expand on exactly what happened the night that Matthew died. She reverts to the the line about not being able to speak without her lawyers. I need to change tact and fast. I ask her to tell me more about Matthew. Matt was a gentle, sweet, kind man, she says, wiping a tear from her eye. He suffered depression his whole life, tried to kill himself twice, she says. I don't recall Lance, the Hazlitts, or anyone else that Matthew knows mentioning a second suicide attempt. I wonder if this is true or part of a story to make Matthew sound more depressed than he actually was. She explains that shortly before his death, Matthew had spent a few days at a mental health facility near Tamworth, but he insisted on keeping his admission private. He hasn't had anything to do with his mother in over 20 years, she says. His adopted mother. Matt loved everyone. He was the kindest, sweetest man, but he hated his mother. So if that tells you anything, she says, raising her eyebrows and nodding. Several people had mentioned Matthew was estranged from his mother and did the best to avoid her since leaving school. Natasha returns to talking about Matthew's suicide threat, explaining how he had once taken a gun from their farmhouse just a month or so prior to his death and called her to say his final goodbye. He never followed through. I was shocked, she said. Even Lance, his best friend, he's just down the back sharing the sheds with me, she says, pointing behind her. We both said when he did it the first time, it was a call for help and there was no way he would kill himself. As Natasha continues to talk, I grapple with the background 
commotion and competing worries. Lance Partridge, who she just referred to, was driving in the back of the paddock at the time and I had interviewed him um, and I didn't want Natasha to know that I had interviewed uh, a lot of Matthew's friends before approaching her. Uh, Natasha continues... After he took the overdose, I had his medication in my handbag so he couldn't do it again. I went through the... Sorry, this is a second suicide attempt that she's now explaining to me, of which um, we now know didn't occur. After he took the overdose, I had his medication in my handbag so he couldn't do it again. I went through the cupboards and took everything out. I thought I was doing the right thing, she says, her voice cracking before the floodgates open. I'm confused. Hadn't she just mentioned he was going to shoot himself? Maybe she was talking about the apparent second suicide attempt, or had she slipped up and lied to us? The tears come thick and fast. She makes a show of wiping them away, as she explains. The day before his death, Matthew was severely depressed after going to a hospital appointment. She says to me, On that Tuesday, the day before he did it, we went to the doctors and they told him his leg wasn't very good. They thought he was going to have to take his leg off and that really, really depressed him, she says. This news had come after Matthew battled with a painful and mysterious calf infections a few weeks prior. But they realised they weren't going to take his leg off, she adds, in complete contradiction to what she's just said. Natasha then says Matthew was distressed about living with a limp for the rest of his life and maybe using a walking stick. On the night of his death, she thought everything seemed okay, but Matthew was worried about the future of the farm and if he was going to be able to run it. She says, We talked for hours that night because I knew he was upset and I didn't want him to go to bed. I kept saying to him, We'll be okay. My mind drifts back to what Matthew's neighbours and Lance Partridge had told me. Matthew was stressed about Natasha's spending and planned to confront her about it because the debts were piling up. Were you in financial trouble? Was he stressed? I managed to ask. She vigorously shakes her head. No, there are no loans or mortgages on the property or anything like that. No, not at all. Conscious of steering her back to the night of Matthew's death, I ask, so you stayed up late chatting with him? For a moment, she looks confused, pausing for a few seconds before repeating how concerned Matthew apparently was and how he was going to run the farm with his leg. She says, I mentioned selling the farm. He could just never do it. He just... Yeah, it was just never going to happen. She crosses her arm and smiles. Anyways, I stayed up late talking to him and I thought I got through to him because he started making plans with me. Now when I look back, he was preparing me for what needed to be done in the next few months. She stops at this point and looks down. I think she's going to continue, but she looks up only to say, but yeah... I take a deep breath. This is the moment I've been dreading. It's time to ask her the hardest question. Did she kill Matthew? Nerves get the better of me. Yeah, well, okay, I totally understand if you don't want to go into any more detail, but there are rumours in town and I've read about your criminal history as well and I just thought um, you might want to address that. Things take a real turn. Natasha manages to smile but looks very unhappy. Hmm, she says. Did you want to say anything about your criminal history at all? I ask again. No, she says. No, no, no. Not knowing what else to say, I force a smile back, knowing there is so much more that I want to ask her. Her sudden frostiness is petrifying. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for your time, I say. She walks backwards, keeping her eyes firmly on us. 
Okay, thank you, she says through clenched teeth. Nathan and I turn towards the car. Once inside, we unleash a series of synchronised expletives. We can't believe that Natasha got that fateful call right in front of us, or how much information she divulged. But I'm kicking myself for buckling under pressure. I didn't ask the most important question. Did you murder Matthew? Um, so that was a, a chapter I wrote. Uh, it was the first chapter I wrote um, for this book. Um, and um, I decided to write the book. It was a couple of years after um, Natasha had been arrested for Matthew's murder um, and I was sitting in a, a pre-trial hearing for the Supreme Court trial and I learned of all these other things from Natasha's past, her criminal offending against men. So it wasn't just this one man she targeted. She had targeted um, several men prior to meeting farmer Matthew Dunbar. So uh, it wasn't until shortly before the trial that I made the decision that this definitely needed to be a book because, um, and it really is about her life and crimes and where she grew up and, and, and how she became a killer and what she did and how her um, violent criminal offending escalated uh, up until that point. Um, does anyone have any questions? <laughs> oh, can I just give you the mic? We're recording yeah. this for the podcast. Uh, we know she's a pathological liar. Do we know where that comes from? Uh, the book seeks to explain some of that. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of um, friends and family of Matthews and people that know Natasha and some of her ex-partners as well. Uh, she grew up uh, near Windsor on the outskirts of Sydney uh, in, a, in a deeply religious family uh, and um, the people that know her say that she always had this propensity to lie uh, but never a violent streak. Uh, and I don't want to give too much away, but the book does seek to explore um, what happened to her um, over her life. Um, there wasn't anything terrible that happened to her in her childhood, um, but she was obsessed with money and a, a obsessed with a better life. Um, so the book uh, follows her journey through um, several of her partners and uh, the way things escalated over time, but certainly... Um, she was obsessed with money. Uh, look, even the psychiatrist that assessed her um, found it difficult um, to, to say what's wrong with her or give her a clinical diagnosis because she is a pathological liar and it's um, difficult for psychiatrists and psychologists um, to make a diagnosis when uh, they can't separate fact from fiction. Yeah? Anyone else? <laughs> Oh, I think the microphone. In a small country town, it's very hard to move without everybody knowing what you're doing. Mm. So I'm surprised that she... She must have been new to the town, was she? Because, um, you know, often information follows you round and, uh, you know, people from country towns are very interconnected. So I just wonder if you give us some light on how she sort of got to town and managed to... Uh, you know, sort of get as far as she did? It's mm. a very good question. Natasha was considered a blow-in um, by the town of Walker and, um, and if anyone's from small country towns, you would know that even if you live there for 30 years, you're not even considered a local. 
Uh, so the, the town was well aware of her criminal past. She had moved there in 2006 um, with her husband, Colin Crossman, the, the man I spoke about earlier. Uh, and she was charged with his attempted murder whilst living in Walker. So the whole town was, was well aware of the things that she had done. Uh, um, and I, I, the town... The town knew about what had happened before she was arrested. Uh, one of the reasons why I decided to spend some time up there and to report on the case was because um, everybody in the town was very open with me about what had happened to Matthew, although um, on the surface Natasha was telling everybody that he had suicided. Uh, everybody in town um, did not believe her in any way, um, and particularly because she had tried to source ram sedatives from the local vet uh, in the lead-up to Matthew's death, and she had no legal use for them. So the vet was so concerned, and knowing her criminal past, actually made a statement with the local police um, explaining that Natasha was trying to buy these drugs. Uh, she spent a long time trying to get those drugs from other vets, uh, but certainly the town was aware, well aware of her past and I think um, probably played a big role in, in her arrest in the end because of the information that they were providing to the police. Um, quite incredibly, and the book goes into some detail, I've interviewed the police officers uh, that investigated the case and also um, the local sergeant in Walker um, who is still very deeply affected by Matthew's death because everybody in the town suspected she was going to do something to him um, because she'd uh, harassed him into making her the sole beneficiary of his estate. Um, but they were powerless to do anything. It, it's very difficult to investigate um, you know, a murder that hasn't happened yet or a, an assault that hasn't happened yet, but certainly everybody in Walker knew what was going on and they were livid that she hadn't been arrested by the time I came to town, which is why I ended up spending so much time there because people were quite open with me. Uh, as a journalist, um, when you go to country towns for murders or horrific crimes, a lot of the time, and, and rightly so, the community doesn't want to speak to journalists or especially people from Sydney. Um, but everybody in Walker was so welcoming and they, they wanted the truth out there and they wanted all the details of the case to come out. I'd just like to know what kind of feedback you've gotten from um, close family and friends of Matthew and Natasha after the book was released. Um, well, the book, I think it came out a week or so ago, um, and from I, I've had mostly positive feedback. Um, I was very wary about upsetting anybody in town, um, especially people that knew Matthew, so I sent most of the chapters to the people that I had interviewed to make sure that they were happy with what was being included in the book. Um, and, and for the most part, they were happy with everything I'd written. I might have changed a word or two in their quotes. Uh, sometimes people speak and don't realise what they're saying, and I think everybody thinks they sound more intelligent than they are when they're speaking, but <laughs> when it's in the written word, it, it looks a bit different. Um, but, um, look, his, his, um, his friends... He, Matthew had a lot of friends. He was estranged from his mother, um, but he was very um, close friends with a man named Lance Partridge, who I am not related to. Uh, but I have become close friends with him and his wife, Trish, and we keep in regular contact. Uh, and I've done several stories with them with, um, in my role as a crime reporter for Nine News. And we recently went up there and did um, like a longer format television 
um, peace with the current affair with the Partridges. So, um, look, so far um, the people closest to him uh, are okay with the book and I, it was very important uh, for me to make sure I had their blessing before I did this because um, the, I think the town's been through enough. So my worst nightmare is creating any more grief um, for the people in Walker. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Emma. I have to say I got your book the day it was released, couldn't put it down, and it's terrific. But my one question is, Colin, her ex-husband, is still married to her, isn't he? I think, what's his reaction to her and how could he condone and still be in her life when she's done all these terrible things? I mean, she hit him with a hammer, she tried to burn him down the house. So what kind of a man did you think he, think he was? Very good question, Cheryl. Actually, everyone, um, Cheryl's the mother of one of my closest friends and um, I was actually looking through a photo album of us in Italy about 15 years ago the other night. Um, Colin. Colin is a mystery to everybody, to me, to everyone in Walker. Uh, he's, a, he's a strange cat. Um, he stood by Natasha uh, after she was charged with his attempted murder. Uh, look, I spent a long time trying to get to the bottom of why Colin might have stayed with Natasha. They're not together anymore. Uh, they're not officially divorced either, though. Um, I uh, have had the opportunity to very briefly speak to him uh, and um, the, the contents of our conversation are in the book, but uh, I can only assume from speaking to people that know him and the police officers that um, Natasha had three children, um, all to different fathers, and uh, Colin went in and acted as their father figure, so he was looking after these children and, and has done a fantastic job keeping the family unit together. So I can only imagine it in some sense perhaps trying to maintain a relationship with her had something to do with the children. Um, he's, he's not spoken, uh, doesn't speak... Um, to people about why he stayed with her. They're, they're certainly separated now. Um, but I, I think the police officers I've spoken to said that after she was charged with his attempted murder, um, he was of the belief she had done what the police had charged her with. Um, but at some point in time, um, she became pregnant with her third child and said that Colin was the father. Um, so from that point in time, when the baby was born, it appeared that he was back on side with her and supporting her um, I only assume that perhaps it was because they had um, a child that they said was theirs together, um, but it is a real mystery and a very strange thing and, and most of the people in, in Walker wonder about why. Uh, how is it that Matthew was unaware of her background if, if Walker is such a small community and she had been um, involved with similar things in the past? How was he so unaware of her background and was he so needy that he just wanted anybody in his life? I wouldn't use the word needy, uh, but Matthew um, was a very generous soul. Uh, he was lonely. He was 42 years old and living on a property that he had inherited, a 1,200-acre sheep farm from his father called Pandora, um, which is on the, the cover of the book. And um, Matthew was well aware um, of her criminal offending. Uh, he had been told uh, and warned by several friends uh, but he was willing to turn a blind eye to that. Natasha um, groomed him uh, 
in a certain way um, and made him feel loved and showered him with compliments and affection, something that was quite foreign to him um, because um, he was quite isolated out on the property um, and has, had always been a lonely figure. Um, so she, he was quite, um, you know, besotted with her. Um, and I can only say that perhaps love is blind sometimes, um, as too many of us will know. But unfortunately for Matthew, um, <laughs> unfortunately for Matthew, um, yeah, he did know. He did know. And in fact, um, there, there's another period of her life where she commits another crime against another man. And that's just at the time where Matthew and Natasha have got together. Um, people did try to warn him. Um, but everybody that spoke ill of Natasha, he cut them out of his life. So his closest friends decided to leave it and just support him and be there for him, whatever happened, um, because they, they wanted to still maintain a relationship with him. Um, given that you understand the background of this all with your crime uh, and the history of the woman, do you think that there was anything preventative they could have done to stop him from, I don't know, if, if he committed suicide or was killed by her? Uh, look, I couldn't, believe, I couldn't believe the fact that police were actually looking into her at the time that she did kill him. Uh, so uh, the police were getting numerous reports from people in the, in the town and from his worried friends and family. Um, but as I said earlier, it's difficult to arrest someone for something that they haven't yet done. Um, but the book sort of delves into what the police were doing at the time and some of the things that they were looking at doing at the time. Unfortunately, um, you know, their worst fears were realised a lot, a lot quicker than anyone anticipated. And I don't think anybody would have ever anticipated that she would actually end up killing him. And she was living on a beautiful multi-million dollar sheep farm. Uh, she should have been happy with that. She had no job, no money... Um, she had a criminal history. So, you know, I, I wonder, and I think so do many people, about why she wasn't happy with that, why she decided she needed to kill him um, to take his money. Uh, but certainly the police were looking into her and, and trying to do what they could. Um, there's a, a beautiful man by the name of um, Sergeant Anthony Smith who was the local sergeant, and he just had a really rough time. You know, every time he walked down the street or he was at the local Walker show, people were coming up to him saying, what are you going to do about this Natasha? You know, she's a con bird. She's a witch. Um, and, you know, he said he felt really powerless to do anything. Um, and he rose his concerns with other detectives in nearby Tamworth. Um, but there wasn't a lot they could do. Uh, and, um, you know, she, she went to great lengths in the end in the way that she eventually killed him uh, and the book goes into great detail about what she did and how she did it but it was over several months of very cold calculated and uh, planning. Off you go. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Natasha managed to get um, Matthew to sign over Pandora to her within a few months of their relationship. What do you think is going to happen now to that property? You know, because her children can't be considered sort of beneficiaries, mm. can they? So That's a good question. One I tried to answer at the end of the book and I will, um, it's a difficult one because obviously Natasha can't profit from a crime under, under the law um, but there's a bit of a grey area um, with estate law. Estate law is very grey 
um, and it, it's up to the, the judge that's hearing the case to decide on the matter. Um, the, the estate is still yet to be divided, uh, but uh, I understand from the inquiries I've made um, with the New South Wales Supreme Court um, that uh, Colin Crossman, on behalf of the children, because they were underage at the time, so acting as their tutor, um, has gone for a slice of the pie, um, so to speak. So it's before the court still at the moment um, with Matthew's mother uh, and the children trying to um, get a slice of that, uh, but it, it's yet to be decided. Um, although um, I did um, read for, for days and hours and had to speak to a friend who was an estate lawyer because it's so confusing... Um, but usually a child of a, of a person who has committed a crime shouldn't be able to be the beneficiary either, um, but it is a grey area, so if they put their case forth to the judge, it's up to the judge overseeing the matter. Al? I can only assume she was going to sell the property. She pretended to be um, very involved in, the, in um, shearing and farming. Um, in fact, that's one of the ways... Uh, that was how she managed to sort of get her claws into Matthew. She pretended that she was really interested in farming. So when she first rocked up at the property, um, she was very interested in looking at the shearing and the wool classing um, and pretended to be... Um, wanting to be involved in the farm life. But I don't think that once she was on the property, she had much to do with the day-to-day -day running of the farm. Um, she was too busy spending all of Matthew's money. Uh, she was only sentenced recently uh, in February. In fact, um, um, the book was supposed to come out quite a time ago, but um, the judge uh, took a lot longer than usual to sentence her. Uh, she was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years non-parole and a maximum of 40 years, So, which is, I think, one of the biggest sentences uh, given to a woman in the state. Um, I, I can't see her getting out at 30 years. It, she refuses to admit what she's done. Um, and in her police interviews and her defence in the case goes into great detail about what she says happened, although that story changes. Uh, so I, I, I would find it difficult for any parole board to give her um, parole or release her after 30 years if she hasn't admitted to what she's done. Uh, but if she does do that, I guess she'll be in her early 70s when she gets out, which is still a worry because I still think she might go and target somebody in a nursing home or... <laughs> Um, you know, she's just done it time and time again. So I still think there's time for Natasha to offend again when she gets out. Has Natasha contacted you? No, she hasn't. Although I have written her a letter and I sent that to the jail that she was in at the time up um, in the, the Coffs Harbour region... Uh, although my partner was very upset with me because I put a, a returned stamped envelope with my address on it. Um, and he said, why did you do that, Emma? Now she knows where you live. Um, uh, perhaps maybe some of her jailbird's friends might throw a Molotov cocktail through my window at some point. Uh, I've moved. I've moved. Um, but, no, I wrote to her and I didn't hear back from her. Um, although she did write a letter um, to the Daily Telegraph where I used to work and um, they wrote an article about that letter she wrote, and I suspect she wrote that letter to me, um, although my former employers weren't forthcoming with the letter and, and, um, and 
wrote an article about it um, but didn't inform me as to whether or not she'd written to me. Um, I'm fairly certain she had written to me. I, I can't see why she would have written to anyone else. We published a front-page article on the, um, in the Daily Telegraph with a three- or four-page spread on the inside um, uh, the day after I confronted her um, and shortly after that she was arrested. Does the book cover the reasons for her, sorry, for his estrangement? Pardon? Does the book cover the reasons for his estrangement from his mother? In some ways it does. It doesn't go into great detail. I did want to remain respectful to Matthew's mother um, and um, regardless of their relationship, she's still a woman who lost her son. Uh, it was... It, it was a difficult balancing act for me. Uh, a lot of Matthew's friends and family had told me what he thought of her and the reasons why, um, and I just didn't think it was appropriate to have in a book um, air, air all that sort of thing for this woman who's lost her only son. Um, uh, but I think you can get a sense throughout the book of um, some, of, some of the reasons, uh, but I didn't go into great detail uh, as to why I think that should probably remain between Matthew and his mum. Okay. What's the next book going to be about? <laughs> I've actually said this to um, Rosie, um, the managing editor at Simon Schuster, who's here at the back, I, uh, first and last book. <laughs> um, I found it incredibly difficult, um, the writing of it. Um, it's a true crime book, so every... I mean, any, any non-fiction book should be correct, but every line... You know, it needs to be correct, needs to be triple checked, um, and unless um, unless I won lotto uh, and didn't have a full time job, I can't see myself writing another book anytime soon. But I, I'd probably need a part time job or um, or quit quit work altogether <laughs> to do another one because it was just um, a bit of a nightmare, like covering murders by day across Sydney from five a.m. till seven p.m. and then writing from eight until one or getting up at four in the morning to do it. So, yeah, I, I found the actual writing of the story quite difficult. Um, I, you know, as a journalist, I love finding stories. I love meeting people and getting to the bottom um, of a case and trying trying to understand why someone has done what they've done. And I always wonder that when I'm looking at murderers on trial. Um, but I don't so much as love the writing part as much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. She's a bit of a mixture. I'd, I would sort of be leaning towards the incredibly dumb side of things. Uh, yes, Rosie's correct. She spent months planning Matthew's murder uh, and Googling hundreds of different ways to murder him, um, which was part of her undoing. Uh, it took a very long time to transcribe all of the searches that she conducted in this book. Uh, but I, I, 
she's very creative in what she has come up with and, and her reasons for things. And in her police interviews, she just she is quick as a flash if they confront her with evidence and, and they say, look, we, we've got the receipt, you bought the ram sedative. She's, she's got a million excuses. Oh, I got that for my horse bugs. And, oh, well, where's the rest of the ram sedative? Oh, he, he walked backwards and the horse smashed it. Um, she just has a, uh, an excuse for everything. So she's very quick on her feet in terms of the lying. She's very good at lying, but I wouldn't call her intelligent. And, and certainly um, the phone searches reveal um, her lack of intelligence, but she's certainly an incredible liar and quite a convincing woman uh, and um, very good at convincing you that what she's saying is true. Unfortunately, just a lot of what, um, a lot of what she says is not true and um, it's horrible. Any other questions? Uh, well, thank you for coming, everyone. This is my first um, reading, so thank you for bearing with me and I um, hope you get a copy of the book and um, I hope, um, I hope uh, you can see all the twists and turns that, that I went through and discovered. The, the book's written from my perspective, um, so from the time I first found out about it right through until the end and um, on all the people, her ex-partners and, and friends and family that I've interviewed. So um, just gives a bit of an insight into how journalists work as well. Uh, but thank you for coming today. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of Writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.